1: ...to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun, and nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow you. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself if you dare. Come inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no more your searches through. You haven't found the darkness, traveler. The darkness has found you. Welcome back to the Horror Hill. We have two stories for you this evening. Our first tale finds a man down on his luck. ...and the meal ticket that might just make a meal out of him. From author Adam Howe, I give you... ...The Mad Butcher of Plainfield's Chariot of Death. Gibbons swigged from his hip flask, driving one-handed as he followed the caravan of carny vehicles barreling along the interstate towards tonight's show... As the booze burned through him, he bared his teeth, glaring in the rearview at the tarp-shrouded shape of the car hooked to his truck. That damned car was supposed to make his fortune. He'd sunk every last penny into buying it. 1960 should have been his year. He should have been sunning himself down in Florida by now. Instead, he was barely eking out a living. Working the off season circuit with this third rate Carney. What the hell went wrong? He couldn't understand it. He always prided himself as having, if not his fingers on the pulse of America, then his hand in her guts. People wanted to see this kind of thing. He'd been sure of it. Psycho had opened big. People had flocked to see it like the stars of Hitch's next picture. But why settle for a movie when you could see the real thing? The Mad Butcher of Plainfield Eddie Gein's car A bona fide relic of Hitchcock's psycho killer It burned Gibbons' ass to see that fat limey prick Hog the limelight that should have been his Fucking movie Apart from Janet Lee's tits He couldn't see what all the fuss was about Gibbons took another belt from his flask Then capped it best save some for later give him some prep for the show tonight he glared in the rearview again a corner of the tarp he peeled loose from the car was flapping like a giant bat wing he considered pulling over tying the tarp back down over the hood the buckled grill glinted like rusted teeth as if the car wanted to bite a chunk out of him but he knew if he stopped the carny wouldn't wait for him Management was already looking for an excuse to shit-can him. At the last town they played, when the cops shut him down, before Gibbons could even pitch his tent, the operator had warned him he was on his last chance. He put on a brave face. All publicity is good publicity, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. And if his luck didn't change soon, if the car didn't start showing a profit, Gibbons was out on his ass... Thought terrified him. The show was all he knew. He joined the Carney as a kid, running away from home in a tyrannical mother who, the more he read about the Gein case, the more she reminded him of Eddie's own hellfire and brimstone spouting mother. The similarities ended there, Gibbons was relieved to know. Unlike Gein, Bonaparte, Bunny, Gibbons was no mama's boy. Far from it. And for all his kinks, Jess asked the gals in the cooch tent, he'd never felt the urge to pay tribute to Ma by robbing graves and wearing the skins of the dead. He was a natural carny. He served his apprenticeship hawking a mouse circus before graduating, or gravitating, you might say, to the freak show. He climbed quickly through the ranks wasn't long before he was working up front at the tin, hustling the rubes with empty promises of the wonders and oddities to be jeered at inside his goatee top hat, cloak and cane lent him the rakish appearance of a debauched Colonel Sanders no carny alive could part a fool from his money like Bunny Gibbons the freak show was good to him those were happy days but after the war first the big one Then Korea. Gibbon sensed the freak show's days were numbered. Too many husbands, fathers, and sons had returned from... over there. Missing arms, legs, and even faces. The freak show had come home to America, and suddenly nobody wanted to pay admission to see it. Not a man to rest on his laurels, Gibbon stitched the freaks without a backward glance, started looking around for his next meal ticket... And then, about the same time Eddie Gein was caught hanging some broad by a butcher's hook in his woodshed, Ma kicked the bucket and left him a small inheritance. Gibbons couldn't believe his luck. Her timing was perfect. When the Gein story exploded across the press, splattering the front pages with grave robbing and cannibalism in flayed flesh, woman suits, Hitchcock wasn't the only guy who smelled a buck— Gein's estate went to auction to pay for his trial. Gibbons moved quick and hit the road. Arriving in Plainfield, Wisconsin, that aptly named Hicktown in the asshole of nowhere, he checked into a motel under an AKA. Kept a low profile, dressed down, not his usual snazzy duds. The grieving family of Gein's victims weren't his worry, didn't even enter his thoughts. No... He was afraid some other showman might have the same bright idea and beat him to the punch. Because it was inspired. He was going to use Ma's inheritance to buy Ed Gein's House of Horrors. Open America's greatest spook house. Disneyland from hell. The freak show wasn't dead. Gibbons only had to see the rubberneckers at a road wreck. Or the looky-loos at a suicide leap to know it. People's tastes don't change. Especially their prurient interests... They just become... More refined... Day before the auction the Gein house burned to the ground... Electrical fault the fire chief said... Funny... Gibbons thought... Considering the place didn't have electricity... And he knew a torch job when he saw one... Ignorant fucking hayseeds... There went his spook house up in flames along with Bunny's dreams. But the auction went ahead anyway, and he stuck around. There were still acres of farmland to sell, tools, junk farming equipment. And Ed Gein's car. A beat-to-hell 49 Ford sedan. When the auctioneers rolled her out, Gibbons thought that the car, splintered left headlamp, right side of the grill twisted up in a smirk, seemed to ape the fool's grin and droopy eye of its owner maybe Ed had clipped a tombstone on one of his nighttime boneyard jaunts even if it wasn't true Gibbets could use that in his act the old Ford had clearly ridden some road in its time the body was dented the running board buckled the scab maroon paint was spattered with rust Inside it smelled like a dead skunk the leather seats were torn, spewing horse hairs and busted springs like weeds. A real piece of shit clunker. But Gibbon saw a chariot of glittering gold. This was it. What he'd been looking for. The big one. No matter what it cost. The whole of Ma's inheritance. Nearly a thousand clams. He had to have her. As he made the winning bid, the whopping fee raised eyebrows and concerns among the plainfield yokels. They had feared that a man like Bonaparte Gibbons would arrive to exploit their grief. But he was just getting started. The carnival pitched tent on a hill above town, working fast to beat nightfall and be ready for the rubes. The bruised sky threatened rain. Gibbons prayed tonight wasn't a washout. He started setting up his stall on the outskirts of the show. No more midway for Bunny Gibbons. He'd been relegated next to the conveniences, where he'd be lucky if some schmo glanced his way as he went to take a leak, and the wafting smell from the latrines only reminded him of his career. He unhooked the Ford from the back of his truck and began pitching the black canvas tent over it. The tent was adorned with grisly illustrations of Gein's House of Horrors, Drawn in the style of lurid pulp magazines that Eddie had loved. Weird tales from the crypt or some other happy horseshit. Spidery writing screamed. Look, the butcher of Plainfield, Wisconsin. Grave robbing and murder. See the crimes that shocked the nation. The Ed Gein ghoul car that hauled the dead from their graves. When the movie came out, Gibbons added a new sign. The real psycho killer. Hitchcock approved For all the good it did Bunny entered the tent and sat up inside Hung a few rubber bats and fake cobwebs from the ceiling The inner walls of the tent were painted with tombstones and zombie walking skeletons He couldn't claim credit for the charnel smell that choked the tent That came free with a car And no amount of air freshener would shift it He jammed a battered wax dummy into the driver's seat The dummy was dressed in jeans trademark plaid jacket and deer hunter's cap, its face carved with a lopsided fool's grin and one droopy eye, just like Ant's. On the passenger seat, Gibbons placed a shovel and a crowbar, and he's grave robbing tools. Strewn across the back seat, the side window was smeared with a bloody handprint, was a rubble of rubber bones and skulls from a novelty store. Okay. So maybe it was a little half-assed. More Ed Wood than Al Hitchcock. But the real showstopper was in the trunk, where Gibbons had rigged a hidden speaker system and a puppet skeleton on fishing wire. Towards the end of his spiel, he'd paint a vivid picture of Gein driving home from the cemetery, a ghoul car heaped with grisly keepsakes. He'd be interrupted by a strange scratching sound from inside the trunk. Like fingernails. Clawing at the metalwork. Acting uneasy to shake up the crowd, Gibbons would approach the trunk hesitantly, mopping the sweat from his brow before he extended a trembling hand to open it. When the trunk clanged open, the skeleton would rear up, shrieking hellishly. Folks just about shit themselves. Forget about the shower scene. Hitch would have been green with envy. So where did it all go wrong? He still remembered opening night, the first time he'd shown off the car, the way the roofs had screamed when the skeleton popped out of the trunk. He thought he'd hit pay dirt. Instead, his luck plane turned to shit. Every gig the Carney played, the cops and outraged parent groups shut him down, citing bullshit charges of public immorality. Like Gibbons was some kind of monster, not a trailblazing entrepreneur. The way they carried on, you'd have thought Eddie himself had busted out of the nut house to roll up in town. We've got to protect the children, they'd say. What a crock. The kids were always first in line to pay their two bits. The other carnies didn't care for the cops sniffing around. There's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the tents Johnny Law doesn't know about, and they aim to keep it that way. And, as any Carney will tell you, shit luck is contagious. Gibbons soon became a pariah. Just him and Ed's car. On the rare occasions he caught a break, got to show off the car without the cops busting his balls. The bad luck kept coming. The tent would collapse in the middle of his spiel. The trunklet would jam or the hidden speakers refused to play. No one could stomach the car's slaughterhouse stink. Kids cried, pregnant women's waters broke, fat guys puked up their beer and corn dogs. One time the car's handbrake unlocked and the Ford rolled back over some poor schmuck's foot. Funny thing, car hadn't even been parked on a grade. Even Gibbons, a stone-cold skeptic, started to think there was something hinky about the car. The way the doors would swing shut by themselves, catching his fingers if he didn't move his hands quick enough or how the horn would blare at night like a wolf howling at the moon, keeping Gibbons and the other carnies awake. Word began spreading that the car was cursed. Maybe, Gibbons thought. Or maybe it was Ma showing her disapproval of his investment from beyond the grave. Gibbons told himself that was crazy thinking. No better than Eddie Gein himself. But how else to explain the night that the car radio, which the auctioneer had sent was broken hissed to life and played Shall We Gather at the River? the hymn that was playing at Ma's funeral it had raked up such unexpectedly painful memories of Ma in her casket Bunny was shocked to find himself blubbering like a baby weeping alone under his ghoulish carnival tent he remembered Ma's note that came with his inheritance spend it wisely the terse note had said I suspect you won't a boy's best friend is his mother, my ass. Night cloaked the carny and the townsfolk came out. So did the rain, announcing a storm that swept across the hill. The walls of the tent billowed in the wind as if the car was alive and breathing within. Rain needled Gibbon's top hat as he paraded outside the tent, twirling his cane and barking to be heard above the rumble of thunder. Here it is, folks. The crime that shocked the nation. You read about it in Life magazine. You saw it in Psycho. Now, see the Ed Geed Ghoul car for yourself. The mad butcher of Plainfield's chariot of death. Just 25 cents. Nobody paid him any mind. Few people even heard him above the storm. Later that night, the carny operator came by Gibbon's lonely, rain-sodden pitch and found him slumped in despair not even bothering to hide his hip flask anymore. "'I'm sorry it's come to this, Bonaparte,' the man told him, and then he scowled at the painted tent, at the illustration of Gein poking his head from a ransacked grave and shook his head in disgust. "'What the hell were you thinking, man?' he wandered away towards the colors and lights of the show. "'People want to see this kind of thing!' Gibbons shouted after him, but the man was gone. Lurching to his feet, Gibbons staggered inside the tent, pulling the door flap closed behind him. An oil lantern hanging on a hook flickered dimly in the gloom. Glaring at the car, Gibbons guzzled the dregs of his hooch and then hurled the empty flask at the driver's side window, fracturing the glass and his own haggard reflection. Breathing heavily, choking back the tears, he sank to his knees. That's it, he decided. He'd get rid of the damn thing. He should have done it months ago. Sell it to some sucker, or just dump it in a fucking swamp. Lightning flashed suddenly, Gibbon started as he saw the silhouetted figures of a crowd gathered outside the tent. He frowned at the car. The buckled grill grinned at him, the splintered left headlamp winking in a lantern light. He poked his head gingerly outside the tent, expecting the cops or a posse of outraged yokels ready to ride him out of town on a rail, blinking in surprise at the crowd that was gathered outside in the dark. They were wearing their finest Sunday clothes. Some of the men wore flowers in the breast pocket of their suits. The women wore fancy hats with veils. A little highfalutin for a third-rate Carney, Gibbons thought, but he wasn't complaining. He hadn't worked a crowd this big in months. With a sweeping flourish of his top hat, he ushered the crowd inside the tent. They shuffled past him, whispering excitedly, their hushed voices rasping like dry autumn leaves. Gibbons pulled down the lantern from where it was hanging. The shadow-cloaked crowd packed tightly around him as if seeking warmth from the sputtering flame. It had grown cold in the tent. All of a sudden... Gibbons could see his breath frosting in front of him. Time to warm him up! He started his spiel the same way he always did. Straight for the jugular. No fucking around. Between the news reports and the movie, everybody knew the story already. What they wanted was the details. To the last dripping drop. The missing woman was found hanging by her heels in the woodshed. He gravely intoned butchered clean like a hog, her entrails filling the tub that was placed beneath the ragged stump of her neck. Her head was inside the house with the others. The crowd was ghostly silent, holding its breath as Gibbon's inventory gains house of horrors like a realtor from hell. The women's heads mounted on the walls like withered trophies, all lovingly dolled up in lipstick and rouge the Nazi-style skin lampshades, the seats upholstered from flesh, the human organs and cutlets of meat chilling in the refrigerator, the noses and ears preserved in jars, the lady parts floating in formaldehyde like brown clumps of seaweed. Hanging in Gein's closet was a crudely tailored suit of flesh, complete with leggings and sagging female breasts, which Eddie would wear like rotting lingerie shambling around the derelict farmhouse in ghoulish emulation of his dear, departed mother. It was Bunny's greatest performance. He was killing it, flinging blood and guts at the speechless crowd like a zoo house monkey-slinging shit. He'd been right all along. People did want to see this kind of thing. He just needed the right crowd to get his mojo back. Now his luck would turn around, he could feel it, to hell with management. He'd find another Carney someplace. Folks like these who appreciated his talents. But first, tonight, he'd celebrate. Buy a fresh bottle of booze. Maybe half an hour with Peggy from the Cooch Tent. Things were looking up at last. And here it is, folks. He hissed in the quiet of the tent. The very car that Gein was driving on his grave robbing raids piling it high with human remains to take home and decorate his house or a fresh dead body to warm his bed.
2: You can live out your master chef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today you can do this when you Angie that
1: the crowd shuffled closer Gibbons raised his lantern to give them a better view in the flickering flame the skeletons on the tent wall seemed to dance among the crowd an unsettling effect Gibbons had never noticed before the pressing bodies closed tightly around him A few flies had skipped the cover charge, he noticed, buzzing above their heads. Christ, it wreaked something terrible in the tent tonight. Even Gibbons, by now quite used to the smell of the car, felt heady on the fetid fumes. The crowd wasn't helping matters. Didn't anyone take a bath in this town? They jostled him back against the car. (laughs) Take it easy, folks, he forced a chuckle. Everyone will get a look-see. The sound of scratching fingernails echoed suddenly from the trunk... ...startling Gibbons more than the crowd. The queue was early. Damned car. But he went with it like a pro. Didn't want to spoil the showstopper. What the heck is that? He feigned surprise, hamming it up. Uh, Excuse me, folks, I gotta go check. The crowd made no move to clear his path. Strange bunch. They seemed more interested in him than the car... Surrounding him like he was the attraction, he clapped the arm of the man in front of him to gently steer him aside and gave a little cry of disgust as his hands sank into rotting fabric and soft flesh. He looked about at the shadowy crowd, gagging at the sickly sweet stench, suddenly filled with a terrible suspicion. The room lurched around him like one of the cardi rides. His legs turned to slinkies. He staggered against the car, propping his hand at the tail to steady himself, and felt something clawing and thumping inside the trunk. He tried to remember if he'd even set up the speakers, but it was hard to think clearly while the thing thumped and clawed, and instead of throwing open the trunk for the showstopper, now he held the lid down, fighting to keep it closed. Whatever was inside the trunk was important that he didn't see it everything else could be explained away in the cold light of day and with enough booze inside him he'd find a rational explanation just as long as he didn't see it and then the car radio hissed to life shall we gather at the river crackling out the voices of a choir horribly distorted as if they were singing at the bottom of the river He pictured Ma's empty casket. Suddenly, he didn't need to see to know what was inside the trunk, thumping and clawing. He looked pleadingly at the crowd. That's all now, folks, he wheezed. Show's over. But the crowd loomed from the shadows towards him, in the guttering flame of a lantern shaking wildly in his hand. He saw the lichen-green pallor of their faces, the withered hollows of their eyes, the lips rotted away to snarling grins. He lurched back in horror, his hand slipping from the trunk. The lock clicked open. The lid groaned up with a belch of foul air, and as the rotten, writhing hag reached out, Dragging him down into a maternal embrace, Bunny Gibbons gave a show-stopping scream.
0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: And things are going so well. At least now, Bunny can cancel his car insurance. Our second story tonight takes us back to the haunted heartland. From author Homer Landley Jr., I give you... In the Darkness of the Fields. Growing up as I did in a cozy college town in central Ohio, my childhood visits to my grandmother's home in the country were always a mixed blessing for me. She lived in a small, one-story home along a country road nestled amongst the farms of western Ohio. While I loved visiting my grandmother, the openness of the country and its seemingly endless fields had a way of making me feel isolated, especially in the autumn months. During the summer, the tall, fern-green stalks of corn and the steamy soil gave the area an inviting vibrancy that helped fill this emptiness. The fall was much bleaker. Once the crops were harvested and the leaves had fallen off the trees, the region took on an air of rot. That the remnants of the harvested stalks would dry and fade to the point where they finally resembled bleached bones did little to dispel this. One October, I headed up with my mom and dad for a visit. Of course... As someone who's always had an overactive imagination, the fact that the trip to her house was intermittently dotted with abandoned cemeteries did nothing to help my uneasiness. Apparently, family plots, they would consist of a handful of sandstone grave markers eroding like wet sugar cubes into tangled grass. There was also the occasional ruined church amongst the stones. Unfortunately for me, besides these sightings and the unending farmland, There wasn't much to break up the drive. Reading in the car has always made me sick. Naturally, I was relieved when I felt the tires shift onto the rumbled gravel that covered my grandma's driveway. After stretching my legs from the trip, I walked over to give my grandmother, a short, blue-haired woman of about 70 at the time, a hug. We followed her into the house for dinner. My grandmother was an amazing cook, and I always made sure my mom got her recipes. That World War II generation really knew how to throw a stick of butter into mashed potatoes in a way that would blow your mind. There wasn't much to do at her house after dinner, so I volunteered to burn her trash. Now, solidly in my tweens, I could be trusted with such responsibilities and took full advantage, since, like most boys that age, I fancied myself a bit of a pyro-expert. As I dragged the bag of garbage out of the house, I noticed that it was already getting dark and gray flannel clouds had silently filled the sky. Having visited the area enough to know that rain was probably coming soon, I hurriedly dragged the bag to the metal drum my grandma used for burning trash and lawn waste. It was at the back corner of the lot, where the edges of her grass faded and gloomy with fall met the ragged dirt of the fields. I threw the bag in and lit it in a few places. I washed it for a while before the rain began to come down sprinkling. Deciding that the rain would be enough to keep the fire from spreading out of control, I went inside to the sound of rumbling thunder in the distance. Knowing that it was getting late, I began to get anxious with the thought of going to bed. I never slept well my grandmas. As I said... I had an active imagination, and even in my secure, suburban bedroom on the second floor of our home, I frequently had nightmares about what could be outside my home while I was in bed. My grandmother's entire home was a single story. What was worse was that I usually slept in the breezeway, which I later discerned wasn't strictly a breezeway, but was more of a living room space between the garage and the house. It was separated from the house where my parents and grandmother slept by a short flight of stairs and a door. There were three other doors leading to the garage and the front and back lawns. The room also had windows on every side except where it bordered the garage. Other than the couch I slept on and a sink, there was nothing else in the room. I always felt very alone and isolated sleeping in there. I laid in bed for a couple of hours and listened to it rain outside. After a while, I heard a train rumble by on the track across the street from the front lawn. I got off the couch and walked over to the window to watch it go by. It always made me uncomfortable how flimsy those single-pane windows were, like there was nothing separating you from the night. After the last car disappeared, I stood there, looking out the window for a bit. At this point it dawned on me that the rain had stopped. I was somewhat upset with myself since I had missed my best chance of having that soothing sound lull me to sleep. However, I could still hear the rumbles and flashes of a storm and hope that it was another one moving in and not just the last one growing more distant. As my eyes continued to adjust, I noticed a flicker on the grass in the right side of my vision... Clearly, the fire hadn't gone out in the back of the lawn, and I went to the rear breezeway window to check on it. Looking through the back window, it quickly became apparent that there had been more unburnt refuse in the drum than I had thought, and the glow of the fire was casting spots of faint orange light along the lawn and fields. The light was reaching far into the night in that flat, dark country and I noticed with some dismay that the storm appeared to be moving south as I watched the faint flashes of lightning explode on the horizon my eyes shifted back to the fields behind my grandmother's house there was something moving on the edge of the light my eyes were fairly well adjusted to the night at this point and I gradually made it out it was the form of a woman dancing in the field. Her movements were... frantic. They were closer to the way a ballerina moves, slowly dipping the torso, lifting the leg gracefully, bowing the arms over her head, and so on. I stood there, petrified in silence. Her mere presence and peculiar movement would have been enough to frighten me. However... A distant flash of lightning consumed the entire field in a moment of pale, white light, revealing that she was also completely naked. My hands gripped the windowsill. She slowly danced along the edges of the fire's orange light, never stepping more than a foot or an arm directly into it. It made me even more uncomfortable when I noticed that she was facing the house and appeared to be closer than she was when I first saw her. There had only been the one lightning flash to illuminate the entire field, so it was difficult to tell at first, but as she drew nearer to the window from which I was watching, I began to realize that her skin was incredibly wrinkled. Despite the grace and effortlessness of her movements, her skin appeared to be ancient as it sagged off her limbs. Gradually... She quit edging around the borders of the light and reversed her dance movements back into the darkness. I pulled myself away from the window and buried my face in the couch. I spent the rest of the night trying to convince myself that it was a trick of the shadows. I didn't get a wink of sleep that night and I crashed around 6 or 7 a.m. when the sun came up. Even though I hadn't called for them the night before, my family knew how hard it was for me to sleep at my grandmother's and let me sleep in for a while. I was eventually woken up by my father, who informed me that my grandmother's ladder was broken and we would need to go borrow one from my Uncle Harley. It was actually my great-uncle, though I never referred to him as such. I smiled and rolled off the couch. I always enjoyed seeing my Uncle Harley and was quick to get ready to go, despite my lack of sleep. I recall being quiet on the ride over to Harley's farm. Looking out into the fields, I realized even if the footprints had been left by the woman in the wet dirt, they would be nearly impossible to find in such a large field with so much debris left over from the harvest. Undecided as to whether that made me feel better or worse, I continued to watch the ruins of the cornstalks fly by along the roadside until the buildings of my uncle's farm began to come into view. My Uncle Harley was a pig farmer, and to this day, it makes me smile when people invoke the profession derisively. My uncle was a successful businessman and farmer, owning a large factory-style farm. Though he didn't do any of the processing on site, he did own several large feed silos next to the long metal barns which held the pig pens. My uncle was a self-made man and veteran of both World War II and Korea reminded me a bit of Clint Eastwood the man was tall and powerful even in his advanced age and despite his stoic demeanor he had a surprisingly sharp sense of humor I could see him waving to us as we turned into his driveway as I got out of the car I noticed how strong the stench of the pigs was it was a smell I was used to and the surrounding area was fairly permeated with it Along with other scents that colored the air and farm country. I actually grew to be somewhat fond of the smell from a distance, as weird as that sounds, but it was overpowering up close. I flashed my uncle a smile, but covered my nose with my shirt as soon as he and my dad turned away from me towards the workshop where my uncle kept his ladders. I went over to a tire swing, hanging from a tree on the opposite side of his house, and more importantly, upwind of the barns. When my uncle came back around the house with my dad carrying the ladder under one arm, I was standing on the swing with one foot in the tire and my hands grasping the rope connecting it to the tree. "'You keep swinging around like that, you're going to stir up the smell,' he yelled to me as I hopped off the swing. I was mildly embarrassed that he had keyed in my own distaste for the smell, but felt better when he conceded that the rain had made it worse than usual.' We stayed a bit after picking up the ladder, but my dad didn't want to get back to my grandma's before dark. We were only going to be there for the weekend and he wanted to make sure we finished the work. When we got back, my dad had me hold the ladder as he scooped brown muck out of the gutter. I was so lost in thought looking out into the fields that I nearly dropped the ladder after a piece of the muck falling shocked me back to reality. I was only able to offer a feeble apology afterward as my mind was still in the previous night and the faded orange on the horizon that indicated that night was coming. Not wanting to give my parents a reason to doubt my maturity or sanity, I didn't tell them about the night before. The reward for my bravery was another night in the breezeway. Unlike the night before, this one was completely cloudless with the bright moon casting pale rays through the windows. I didn't figure I was in for much sleep and just laid on my back in the couch, staring at the ceiling. I could hardly believe it when I heard the grandfather clock's Westminster chimes from across the house, followed by the bells denoting the hour. How clearly those low tones made their way through the air made me realize how silent the night had been and let me know that it was already two in the morning. The drowsy formation of this thought was shattered by another sound. A faint sound, rustling from outside. The noise sent a chill down my spine and I immediately snapped up to see that the window over the sink was cracked open. My mom or grandma must have opened it for ventilation during the day. Doing my best not to look out the window and to stay beneath the window line above which someone could see me, I rolled off the couch and hugged closely to the sink. As my fingers crept up the wall, over the sill and onto the window, I heard another rustle, louder, from the backyard. Out of my peripheral vision, I saw movement and felt a tear of frustration and fear trace down my cheek I pulled the window shut and as I did so looked out the window to my left into the backyard the woman was there standing not 15 feet from the house and staring at me through the window I was frozen partly out of fear and partly out of a hope she didn't see me after all, I was closing a window on nearly the opposite side of the room in the dead of night. Her body was facing away from me, and the skin on her back was hanging like melted wax. Her head was turned, looking over her shoulder to face the house. To face me. Her arms were spread out away from her body, and her palms were aimed in my direction, With the same grace that she had displayed the night before, she pivoted her body on one foot, turning to face the rear window. She slowly moved towards the house. Her movements illuminated the moonlight. It was then that I realized yet another horrible thing about this woman. Her skin wasn't just baggy. It was jointed. She looked like a ragdoll that had been sewn together. It seemed like it was being held together from shedding in sections. The moon cast shadows over her eye sockets which didn't quite seem to fit her face. As she crept closer, I noticed her lips looked thin and cracked and her breasts were dry and shriveled. Slowly... She placed her hands on the frame of the window, and I made out the glint of two eyes and the shadows of those ill-shaped sockets. They were peering right at me, with an intensity that cut right through the space between us. The shock of her looking into the house was enough to turn the squeaks caught in my throat into screams. I flopped onto the floor and scrambled backwards against the front door, I could hear my parents stirring in the house, and as their footsteps approached, the woman tilted her head back. Her face appeared to stretch into a howl, but it didn't seem like she could move her lips very far apart. I couldn't hear if she made a sound. She pirouetted and disappeared back into the night. I threw up into my lap as my parents came into the room. The next morning, my parents didn't prod me to talk about what I had seen. I explained it to them in jabbering fashion the night before as they helped me clean up. Eventually, I fell asleep, my mom sitting up next to me. I had a handful of night terrors when I was younger, and my parents chalked up my expertise to that category. I said nothing to dispute this, even though I didn't believe it. I hoped that I really had had a night terror and that maybe that would explain what I had seen. My dad offered to let me stay at my grandmother's as he returned the ladder he had borrowed from my uncle. Because I didn't want my family to worry about my state, I insisted on accompanying him. Besides, I figured getting out would help calm me down. However, as we drove, I imagined her behind every tree we passed lurking in every drainage ditch. For the most part, I just laid back with my seat reclined, staring into nothing until I got to the farm. By the time we got there, I was feeling a bit better. Still, I decided to stay in the car as my dad went with my uncle to return the ladder to its shed. I didn't need the smell of those pigs upsetting my stomach any further. As I was trying to put my thoughts elsewhere... I glanced into the rearview mirror and saw another vehicle coming down the driveway. It was a pickup. It pulled past me towards the barn. As my uncle and dad came around the house, the truck stopped and the driver got out. I was relieved that my uncle didn't appear concerned, but he did have a stern look on his face. He made a couple of steps towards the pickup and pointed the driver to the barn. The driver then walked over to the barn slid the door to the side and picked up the leash to a pig that had been tied to one of the pens as he led the pig towards the pickup my uncle and father kept walking towards the car i opened the door to say hi that's teddy my uncle said he has a small farm maybe dozen pigs usually don't sell single hogs and sows Started doing it a while ago to help him get started, and now it seems like he's coming by once every few weeks. What's his problem? My dad asked. My uncle laughed. (laughs) With the pigs or everything else, not sure in any case. He eats some, tries to breed others, I suppose. I don't talk with him much, just sell him a pig every now and then. He says he butchers his own meat. My dad looked over in the man's direction. Is he trying to be self sufficient? I guess. I try not to talk to him too much. God damn it, Ted! I looked away from my uncle and dad to see the man opening the hog's throat with a long knife. He had his arm around its side as its legs kicked around like it was being electrocuted. I couldn't believe how much blood spilled out of its neck and onto the ground. Didn't I tell you not to do that here? The man smiled weirdly at my uncle and then slung the pig's limp body into the bent of the truck. It was amazing how effortlessly he did it. The hog must have weighed a few hundred pounds. He pulled a tarp over the body before he closed the tailgate. The man turned and got into the driver's side of the car. Blood was dripping under the ground from under the tailgate. My uncle sighed and looked at the ground, visibly pissed. He doesn't have a proper trailer to move them around, so sometimes he does that here to make it easier. Smiling up at me, he added, or sometimes he hog ties them. I laughed, even though it wasn't a great joke, or even a joke at all, really, since I'm sure that's exactly what he did. The way my uncle said it put a smile on my face. He pinched the bridge of my nose as the pickup drove by and waved with his other hand without looking at the man. The man barely looked at us, but I caught a glimpse of his eyes that made me shiver. We left for home fairly soon after getting back to my grandmother's, which was fine with me. I loved her, but I was ready to get out of there. I slept the whole ride home and tried to put the whole experience out of my mind as best I could. For years after that, I visited my grandma's without incident. On one particular visit, I picked up the local paper while I was in town. On the front page was the face of the man I had seen at the farm that day. Teddy. The memory of that story and the realization that came with that chills me, even now as I recollect it. The man, who was apparently named Teddy Warden, had been in a car accident in his pickup, He was speeding through a stop sign on a country road in the early morning when a semi crushed in the passenger side of his truck. The pickup was sent spinning across the intersection and flipped into a drainage ditch. By the time the driver of the semi got out to check on the other vehicle, Warden had already crawled out of the cab and was tearing across the field. Perplexed, the driver continued towards the flipped pickup, then fled back to his semi to call for help. The tarp was draped out of the bed of the pickup, fully uncovering its spilled contents. Corpses. And the parts of corpses were scattered into the mud. Later that day, the sheriff's office, with backup from a larger nearby city's police department, showed up at the man's house. They reported an overpowering stench from outside the building. Opening the garage, they found the butchered and rotting skeletons of hogs. One hog was hanging upside down, field dressed like a deer. They noted that it appeared as if he was slaughtering them and feeding them to the other pigs, as putrefying hog meat was found at the feed troughs. It was a matter they were forced to investigate in some detail after the horrors they discovered inside. The officers were met by an intensified smell inside the house. The building was completely unlit, and I can only imagine how horrible it was for them to comb that house. The source of the smell wasn't the pigs, or at least wasn't just the pigs. Hanging from the walls were remnants of human bodies in various stages of decomposition. They weren't just hung on the walls as trophies, either. The paper likely spared many of the details, but noted that there were several overturned skulls that appeared to be used as bowls. When the officers entered Warden's room, they found him rocking in his bed, hands at his side. He had skulls on the bedposts. The floor was apparently littered with the remains of corpses. And even though he made no reported attempt to resist arrest, it was apparently difficult to get Warden out through the darkness and clutter. Warden only howled as they removed him from the house. The writer noted that his home's distance from the road and Warden's known habit of transporting butchered animals in his truck had kept the signs of his activities hidden. As of the date of that paper's printing, those involved had discerned that the body parts had come from at least 38 separate individuals, though they were still in the process of sorting and identifying the remains. Initially, this confused investigators. Such a high number of disappearances would have been noticed in such a small town. However... The answers to their questions quickly became apparent through examination of the corpses and interviews with Warden. Many of the bodies were ancient, nearly fully decomposed. The investigators surmised that they had been stolen from graves, a conclusion that was later confirmed by Warden. While a few were identified as thefts from more recent burials, the majority of the bodies have been stolen from the abandoned cemeteries that sit by the country roads, the disturbed earth obscured by the long grass. They will likely never discover the identities of many of these older corpses. Though the thought of Warden quietly absconding in the dead of night to an abandoned graveyard and sealing the long decomposing bodies interred therein is certainly chilling to me. the most unsettling part of the story involves how they found Warden in his house before they arrested him. When the officers discovered Warden in his bed, he was lying next to a woman's suit. Carefully sewn together from the skin of the fresher corpses he had exhumed. Through interviews, the police had discovered that Warden would wear the suit and prowl the fields at night, using the seclusion afforded by the darkness and remoteness to live out his fantasy. The realization washed over me. All those years ago, I had seen him. He and I, alone in the darkness separated by a flimsy window and a little bit of space Thanks for joining me this evening at the Horror Hill. The Mad Butcher of Plainfield's Chariot of Death was written by Adam Howe. Other titles by Adam Howe include Die Dog or Eat the Hatchet, Tijuana Donkey Showdown, Black Cat Mojo, and Wrestle Maniacs. An anthology of dark wrestling fiction featuring a murderer's row of today's best indie writers. In the Darkness of the Fields was written by Homer Landley Jr. Homer Landley Jr. grew up in rural Ohio and is now a practicing attorney. An avid fan of horror and science fiction, some of his key influence include Philip K. Dick, H.P. Lovecraft, and the Strugatsky brothers. In the Darkness of the Fields is his first published work. Jason Hill Additional performers have been featured when necessary to bring the tales to life Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors Sound design original music and final mixing and mastering provided by Luke Hodgkinson under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek The program's artwork and logo by Jason Hill Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions? Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure that you never miss an episode. And please... Leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Thursday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs-up button, too, to tell us how we're doing. Oh, and if you could, please leave a kind word, or even a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for more than 500 free audio horror stories, including more performance from yours truly, and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Thursday with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, this is Jason Hill. Good evening.